Please have a seat and uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to the Leewood campus. I'm Tom Nelson and uh, I serve on the teaching team at Christ Community. I love being with you on a beautiful morning like this. Um, and uh, don't we just wish every Sunday was like this? So Chiefs 5-0 Sunday, a perfect day, and you're here. So uh, I'm delighted you're here. And uh, one of the little kind of little things about my life is, at least presently, I have a little office over here that looks out over the pond, and there's this little tree. Uh, I know it's the peak of the leaf peeping season, at least in Kansas City, when this tree turns bright red. Uh, and this morning, as the mist came over the pond and the sun came up, I watched this brilliant orange. And so it is a Beautiful day, the day the Lord has made, and we're so glad you're here. And if you are visiting, uh, I want to give you a very warm greeting, and I uh, hope you sense the presence of Christ here. Um, and we are so glad you're here on this perfect day. Well, everywhere I go, everybody is still talking about what the critics have described as um, perhaps the greatest television show ever to grace television. And some of you are going through withdrawal for Breaking Bad is over. I won't have you raise hands, how many are Breaking Bad fans, but it's uh, amazing. Yeah, thank you. It's amazing. Everywhere I go, people are talking about it. And if you have read this story or followed it online or watched some of the series, you know that it's the main character. It's kind of a cool-looking guy, uh, Walter White. Um, And I won't give you all the story, but let's just say the story is about Walter White doing a lot of bad things. And Breaking Bad could really be called Broken Bad because Walt is, well, he's a mess. One of the things that surprises me about this show is the creator, well, first of all, his name makes me laugh, Vince Gilligan. You know, my generation, it was Gilligan's Island. You know, I remember Gilligan. I don't know how, anyway. So, I'm sorry, I'm off track here. Stay on track. But Vince Gilligan, after the last episode... Um, really said something quite remarkable. The the brilliance of him insight stunned me. He says, I guess our gut told us, talking about the last episode, that it would feel satisfying for Walt to at least begin to make amends for his life. And if you've seen the show, he needs a lot of amends, right? And for all the sadness and misery wrought upon his family and his friends. Now notice what Vince says. Walt is never going to redeem himself. He's just too far down the road to damnation. Now, I really appreciate Breaking Bad in the sense that they get a lot right. We do live in a broken world. We are broken people, and we cannot redeem ourselves. It's pretty insightful, actually. We all share this commonality. It's woven into the frayed fabric of our own humanity, our broken humanity. And whether we are a person of faith, we've been a person of faith a long time, or we're here today just exploring faith, all of us share this common ground that we are all broken people. That brokenness, that breaking bad brokenness, you know, is our constant companion. Wherever we show up, on school on Monday morning, I hear an amen on that, at work on Monday morning, brokenness comes with us and all who are with us. But it is not just in school and uh, at work. Brokenness, well, it kind of finds its way on Sunday morning church. We're all breaking bad people, and brokenness is a part of what we call church. 
Now, uh, my conversation, I'm a pastor, I know, you know, and sometimes people are polite with me, sometimes they let me have it. Uh, but uh, often, people, I think, in our culture misunderstand this about the church. You know, we often hear people say, well, I kind of think Jesus is cool, but this thing called church is a mess. I don't want anything to do with it. The church is messy. There are hypocrites there. We've all heard that. But what many of us fail to understand in our culture is that the church is made up of broken people. And yes, that includes pastors. We are afraid lot too. <laughs> uh, we have our frailties. And uh, let me just say this past week, if there's hell on earth... I found it, or should I say it found me? I was uh, in Chicago for some things and was navigating the Tri-State Tollway. It's quite a fascinating place. I mean, Chicago's a good place. Don't get me wrong. From Chicago, I like Chicago. I go there a lot. But I just happened to get off the Tri-State Tollway and make my way with zillions of other cars and drivers. Plaza number 26 toll exit. I still remember the number. How could I forget it? Because with all the chaos and watching everything going on, I pull up, have my $1.90 and change right there because I don't have an iPass. Rental car, I don't do that kind of thing. Maybe I should. So I'm pulling up to what I think is going to take my cash. I got $1.90 for goodness sakes. It's already. And all of a sudden, I see I'm in the wrong lane. There's only one lane for cash. I'm like, ah! And there's little cars all behind me. I'm like locked in. I can't go back. I'm stuck. Now, this is hell to me. It's as close as hell gets. No kidding. I thought things you wouldn't want to think, your pastor thinks at that moment. I couldn't get out of it. So finally, out of desperation, you, maybe you've been there, horns honking at me and Chicagoans hating me. I dash through and <laughs> do, you, do you think I'm in trouble if I end up with handcuffs? I had a nightmare. I had a dream last night. No kidding. It... <laughs> Two Chicago police officers arrive in Leewood, Kansas at my door and haul me away. I hope that doesn't happen. Someone in the first service said, no, they'll just send you this. I hope that's the case. But pastors are broken. I was much more like Walt than Pastor Tom. It was breaking bad for me in Chicago this week. <laughs> Yikes. Well, we are all broken people, aren't we? We are. And it only takes a glimpse under our Sunday smiles to realize that the church is a needy group of messy people. But, but, we don't have to revel in our brokenness. The text we are going to look at today sets us a sail with hope that we can be restored as broken people because of Jesus' death, death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. When people like you, you and me who are broken can be restored gloriously. What good news. In our journey at Christ Community this year across our campuses, we have been going through what we call Open Here. It's a wonderful way for us to get in the Bible every day, uh, not as a checkoff list, but to explore this amazing story. And we began in Genesis in January, and by God's grace, we're going to finish in Revelation in December. 
And where we find ourselves this morning is really in a remarkable part of the story of redemption of God's planet and God's world, and that is the birth of the church. I find it fascinating and important that the gospel writer John finishes his book, his conclusion to his gospel, laying the groundwork for the birth of the church. And it is found in our text this morning. So I'd like if you have a Bible electronically or paper, turn there with me if you haven't already, to John chapter 21, the gospel. Because this word gives us good news for broken people, because God restores broken people and uses them to accomplish His redemptive mission in the world. Is that awesome? So as we enter this text, let's set the literary context as thoughtful listeners and reader of the text. We know that in John chapter 20, which we looked at last week, something new is afoot in the world. It is stunning, actually, that resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, brings resurrection hope, and it comes breaking through. In chapter 20, the gospel writer John zeroes his brilliant literary lens in on Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. And Thomas moves, encountering the resurrected Jesus from everyday faith that believers and non-believers have, you cannot live without faith, to a new kind of faith entirely, and that is resurrection faith. So while John, in writing the gospel, highlights Thomas's resurrection faith, now he begins to focus in what we might call the epilogue on resurrection love. In John 20, John's literary crescendo of the book centers not in John 21, but in 20, when Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. So now we come to chapter 21. Chapter 21 might be thought of as like a PS on a letter we write. But I don't want you to think that this PS is an afterthought or an unnecessary one or a minor one. It is the restatement of a main thought in his whole gospel. That is that the crucified and risen Jesus restores broken people and established his, his redemptive work called the church in the world on the backs of broken people. Now, featured prominently, as Pastor Randy mentioned, in this section of the text is Peter. Now, if you have read the Gospels, this should not surprise you of Peter's prominence at the end of John's Gospel. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus and Peter have this conversation, and Jesus says to Peter, you are going to be a foundational part of this thing I am creating, this new creation called the church. So Peter is going to have a big role in the church. So it's not surprising that as John ends his gospel, as he lays the story and lays the tracks for what is to come that we're going to begin to look at next week, that John ends with Peter. Now, as you are following along, as you look at this text in its structure, the scaffolding of the text frames the trajectory, the trajectory of the message this morning. And that, are, there are, that is, there are two threads of thought that are vital in this text for us to grasp that I'd like to unpack for us this morning. First is that Jesus 
transforms who we are. In other words, He restores our brokenness. And Jesus transforms, He reorders what we love, restores our brokenness, and then He reorders our loves. And that's where we're heading this morning as the text leads us. So first, let's look at the first truth that emerges here. Jesus restores our brokenness. Now, let's walk back into the sandals of Peter. If you look at John 21, it's a narrative with different scenes. It's a literary genre. And we have to understand the context of where Peter is at. Let's remember that Peter is absolutely devastated. He is crunched over with shame and guilt and fear and brokenness. For Peter, that Friday that John has already described is not Good Friday. It's Breaking Bad Friday for Peter. Because in the wee hours in the morning, in the high priest's courtyard, tough, macho Peter melted around a charcoal fire. Cowardly so. And in a culture, to deny a friend is unthinkable. Around that charcoal fire, Jesus, or Peter denied Jesus three times. And the text of the Gospels say that he wept with bitter tears. But through those bitter tears, the shame and guilt and failure confronted him every moment like a repeating nightmare as he saw the one he loved, he served, he was with three years dying on that cross as Peter, it seems, watched from a distance. It is hard to imagine the sleepless nights, the anguishing heart that Peter had. Failure overwhelmed him. But, John tells us in chapter 20, things begin to change. Easter morning, Peter is confronted with the news that the tomb is empty, and he runs, you remember the story, he runs to the tomb, and John is so cute here. I don't know if John is cute, but John says, hey, I outran him. It's kind of cute, kind of a fun thing in there, and Peter and John go, and the tomb is empty. This sets off a sequence of events that create the most extraordinary dissonance in Peter's heart and mind. That very night of Easter morning, Jesus appears to His disciples, minus Thomas, which we noticed last week. Thomas is conspicuously absent. The same night, the first Easter night, Jesus walks through the door, locked, and appears to the disciples. And the other gospel writers tell us what John doesn't. And that is that Jesus spent a lot of time with His disciples, minus Thomas, and He not only showed them His hands and all that, He ate fish with them. And Luke also says He had the most amazing Bible study. He connected all the dots of the Scriptures. So Peter knew, without a doubt, Jesus had risen from the dead. A week passes. The next Sunday morning, or the next Sunday, Jesus walks through the door again to the disciples. Now Thomas is there. And Peter can still hear the echoing words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And the Apostle Paul gives us some other insight in 1 Corinthians 15. That in this week time period, Peter 
got a personal visit from Jesus. We don't know any more details about it. But we do know Peter knew that Jesus had bodily risen from the dead. That wasn't the issue. The issue was the one who had washed his feet, the one who had promised him this great place in the church that Jesus was building. Peter wondered, was Jesus done with him now? Was his failure fatal? Was it all over for Peter? So Peter, facing the nightmare of his failure over and over and over again, makes his way from Jerusalem with his fishing buddies and some of the disciples and goes north of the Sea of Galilee to do what he's always done, and that is to fish. The one thing he knew. So John 21 follows the scene of the disciples and Peter fishing with Jesus, we might call it. If you look at the story, you can look at it more this week in John 21. Peter is fishing out on the lake, Sea of Galilee, and he's fishing at night. That's what pro-fishermen, commercial fishermen did. We know that from the other Gospels that Peter's vocational life was fishing. He's not just putting, you know, a little rod in the water and catching a fish because he's bored. He's going to back, back to what he knew. And what is stunning about this narrative is that John is very specific that these guys have been fishing all night. That's what they did. That was what commercial fishermen did. That was their livelihood. They didn't get a stinking fish all night. This is to be a contrasting why John inserts 153 fish later. Strange. The point is, is that for a pro fisherman to not even get a bite, to not have one fish in the net was unthinkable. I have a brother-in-law, his name is Mel, and uh, he is a pro-fisherman. Yeah, Minnesota people, there are people like that. I don't know if you know, maybe someone's here, but they make a living in fishing tournaments. That's how good they are. They have the latest equipment and all that, and you know, Mel will let me send an email, hey, I got this and this, and I won this award. I have never heard in my life Mel say, we never caught one fish all day, not one, because pro-fishermen always catch at least something. So what is John saying? Once again, Peter comes face to face with utter failure. And to top that off, imagine with me, this, these, they're small boats in the Sea of Galilee, first century, small fishing boats with nets. They've been fishing all night. Nothing, 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 nothing. All over that lake. I mean, it's not like the Great Lakes. You can get around the lake all night. There's nothing in that stinking lake. And then as the sun rays begin to rise and bounce off the Golan Heights to the east behind them, the first rays of light scatter across the water, and they can see this guy, some shadowy figure on the shore. And you don't ask commercial fishermen how the catch went. But this guy says, how'd you do? A little bit of a paraphrase there. How'd you do? And what is really shocking in the story that sets up the conversation is that 
These pro fishermen, in a small boat, a little wider than this platform, listen to him. And basically he says, you've been putting your net out now, put your net on the other side. It's like 10 feet across, 10 feet of water. And so they go like this, and the whole net is full of fish within just a few feet. They fished all night with nothing. John's got it. John says to Peter, just love that, it's Jesus, the Lord. Only Jesus could do that. Remember, Jesus had still the sea. So isn't it amazing that Peter dives out of the boat, at least that's my imagination, and swims toward the shore? He leaves his buddies to collect all the fish in the net, and they can't bring it in the boat. The boat's too small, and the fish are too heavy, and they drag it to the shore, and there, fishing with Jesus becomes breakfast with Jesus. The one who had washed their feet earlier now makes them breakfast. Don't you love that? And for a fisherman who grew up in Minnesota, and I think of fresh walleyes filleted on a charcoal fire, it makes me hungry. An outdoor fire with walleyes filleted is as good as it gets. But it is not just Jesus being sensitive to feed some hungry fishermen who have been fishing all night. They're starving. No, something else is going on here. The last time Peter was around a charcoal fire was in the high priest's courtyard when he was warming himself. And when the heat really hit him, he bailed out. So the smell of the fish and the fire brought Peter right back to the high priest's moment. But this fire will not be the fire of failure, but restoration. Now, notice how the conversation unfolds. I want to read it carefully again because everything sets up in the conversation with Jesus. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, verses 15 through 19, said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I can't imagine Peter having given Jesus eye contact here, but that's just my imagination. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved or hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Don't you love how John frames his gospel? He probes the highest heights of the universe and Jesus' eternality in the beginning and he ends with a very down-to-earth conversation with a broken person like you and me. John does not end his gospel with a great miracle. If you want to 
at least not his greatest one, or a great sermon, but a conversation with Peter. That stuns me. It is in this conversation do we find such great riches of truth to our lives. This conversation is one of the most famous conversations in all literature. And it is brilliant. Its literary style, its word plays, its changes in the original language are absolutely glittering with brilliance. But I want to have us focus on three observations I think are important for us to grasp. First of all, you will notice, I think it's in verse 20, that John says, I'm following closely when Jesus and Peter had this conversation. So the picture here is after breakfast, this walleye breakfast, Sea of Galilee walleye breakfast, Jesus taps Peter on the shoulder and says, Peter, let's go. And they take a walk. John is right behind him. And he hears every word. There are three observations I think are important for us to grasp here. First of all, there's a threefold question and request. And clearly, John is making an implicit comparison to contrast Peter's three denials of Jesus in chapter 18. But second, also, we often miss is that Jesus addresses Peter in his formal address three times. Now remember, he doesn't just say Peter. Like when my mom, when I was in trouble, she'd say, Thomas James Nelson. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus' formal address, remember the other gospel writers tell us that when Jesus chose Peter to be a disciple, he gave him a new name, and that was Simon or Peter. But when Jesus meets Peter, it is Simon, son of John. So right away, we are connecting Peter's whole story. His initial call to be a disciple, Peter's denial of Jesus in the courtyard, and now the third Simon, son of John, links us to Peter's restoration and call to lead the church. And it is a call that will cost Peter his very life. As tradition says, he was martyred. The third observation I want us to make is you'll notice the prominent theme of love. This is where John goes. This is the focus. Three times, unlike, again, the three denials, same kind of picture here, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And in the first instance, he said, do you love me more than these? And it's kind of a Dr. Seuss moment, right? Theses. What are the theses? And the most brilliant Greek scholars wrestle what this means. We don't know exactly. What are the theses? It could be the theses, can I use that language, of his vocation, his fishing fleet, his business. Do you love me more than this business? Or it also could be, remember John, the fun part is John is close by. John is hearing this conversation. And so, do you love me more than these? He, Peter could be being asked, do you love me more than you love these buddies of yours, these disciples, these friends? Or what I think is going on, my guess, my hunch, is that as John is walking right behind, there's Peter and Jesus, 
And they're having this conversation, and Jesus goes like this. John, do you love me more than them? Do you love me more than the rest of the disciples? However is going on here, what is very real is that Jesus is probing the deepest affections of Peter's broken and disillusioned heart. Thomas Carlyle, the 17th or 19th century Scottish essayist, said this. I love this. He said, it is doubtful that God can use someone greatly who has not been first broken badly. And here we have a devastated broken Peter, broken bad from bone to bone, and someone who God is going to use greatly. Wow. Peter's failure is not fatal because resurrection love is breaking through. And resurrection love not only loves the good shepherd that John has already mentioned in John 10 as Jesus, but loves the good shepherd sheep. So Jesus is inviting Peter and all of us who will follow him to take up our cross and follow him, and that will prove costly. And Jesus graciously restores Peter's brokenness. But he also notice he reorders Peter's affection. Do you see this? Jesus' emphasis on loving rightly, we must not miss here. For often we view authentic Christian faith, discipleship, and local church community by primarily what we profess to believe and not by what we love and how we love. Believing rightly, and hear me carefully, is very important. It is vital. But loving rightly that flows from believing rightly is at the heart of authentic Christian faith and authentic Christian community. The perilous danger for us as disciples and as a church is we can believe rightly and not love rightly. Faulty belief is a dire peril, but so are the disordered loves of the human heart. John makes this so clear in Jesus' words in John 13. When Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room before his crucifixion, a new commandment I give to you, that you what? That you love one another just as I have loved you, that you are also to love one another. And then he says, by this, all people will know you are my real deal, my disciples, if you love one another. So as the church is about ready to be birthed in all its redemptive power, Jesus goes for the heart of Peter's affections because a church is built not just on what we believe, but how we love and rightly ordered loves. This is where John's going. The gospel of belief becomes the gospel of love. The fourth century writer and great churchman, we know him usually as St. Augustine, but his name was Augustine of Hippo. It's not an animal, it's kind of a place he hung out. Had a really good understanding of this in the right ordering of our loves. One of his most brilliant writings that has been passed down to the church, which I think is the best writing ever written apart from the Bible on ordering our loves, is this text. And this is what St. Augustine says. I'm going to read it slow because it is so rich and so true and so transforming. He says, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things. That is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or to fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less 
or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. So what does it mean to love Jesus? We know this text tells us, and John 14 tells us, it is to obey his word. First and foremost, John 14, 21 says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is who loves me. But this text in John 21 adds another piece to that equation. We obey out of grace, out of gratitude, not of merit. But we also love Jesus, not only in our obedience, but by loving what he loves in the way he loves it. When we walk close with someone, we become like them. We look like them and we love like them. Uh, it's interesting, in my marriage, 31 years, Liz has put up with me. And it is amazing to me, and when you look at people who are getting older, how they look alike. You ever notice that? They look alike, act alike, but they love alike. You know, I never was a Jayhawk fan until I married a Jayhawk. I mean, my affections have changed for the Jayhawks. I mean, I hope that doesn't make you shut me off. But on a more significant moment is that when I married Liz, my life was much more like the Grinch who stole Christmas rather than Santa Claus. And over the years, my Grinchliness has become joyful generosity because Liz's affections of being Santa Claus, not just on Christmas, let me tell you, every day of the year, has made me love what she loves. When you walk close with someone, when you love someone, you become like them. You look like them, and you love like them, and you love what they love. And this is where Jesus says, Peter. Jesus says to Peter, not just do you love me, don't miss his response, but do you love what I love? And the question for us flowing from John 21 is that question. Not just do we love Jesus, but do we love what he loves and the way he loves it? How do we know what Jesus loves? Well, Jesus loves a lot of things, but there are three things he loves perhaps most with the deepest affections of his heart. We know this from the biblical text, and one of them is right here. And the way to remember this simply is Jesus loves the lambs, the least and the lost. Notice in this text the language of lambs. It's a shepherding metaphor. Jesus is the good shepherd. And Peter is being challenged to love what Jesus loves, to love his flock, to love his church. And it's not accidental. It's a, it's a shepherding metaphor. Because sheep are messy. I mean, I, I've never, you know, literally shepherded sheep, but I've hung around a lot of people. And people are like sheep. We're vulnerable, we get lost, we get distracted, we screw up. Sheep are messy business. So is the church that the good shepherd loves with all his heart and calls us to love it too. I often hear people say to me, oh, I love Jesus. I can't get into Jesus, but that church thing, I don't love the church. How is that possible? It not only reflects woeful theology, but it reflects a disordered love of the heart. We don't have to love everything about the church. Of course not. When the church loses this doctrinal foundation, that's an issue. 
when it doesn't do what it ought, when it doesn't love as it ought, when it strays from sound doctrine. We don't love sin, but we are to love our brothers and sisters, warts and all, and we all got them. And the Bible tells us the church is the bride. That metaphor is rich with meaning. I do a lot of weddings, and every time I stand next to the bridegroom, as the bride comes down the aisle, you can feel his heartbeat. Because there's nothing he loves more at that moment than his precious bride. He would do anything for her. He loves her with everything of his being. And this is the picture Jesus gives of the church, messy and all. There's no greater affection, Jesus has, than for us. It's broken, messed up, restored people. And if you love what Jesus loves, you nourish her, you cherish her. You pray for her, you serve her, you support her, you sacrifice her for her, you speak kindly of her. Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep, and he calls us to do the same. And sometimes that's in the sacrifice of our preferences and times of change, deferring to others. It is loving his lambs. Do we love them? The closer we walk with Jesus, the more we love his sheep. But not only his sheep, we, we love the least. In one of Jesus' most compelling sermons in Matthew 25, Jesus points us, his disciples, to the most vulnerable in society, the stranger, the one who's hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the imprisoned. Let me just add, in our context, the orphan, the widow, the enslaved, the trafficked, the abused, the elderly, the unborn, and we can list more. Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. If we love what Jesus loves, dear friends, we will care for the least in our culture, in our society. Do we? The closer we walk with Jesus, our loves change. How we love, what we love. We love his church and we love the least, but we also love the lost. Jesus loves lost people. John has been unpacking this in his whole gospel. He loves all kinds of lost people, people who are outside, yet in this moment in time, the redemptive work of God in their life. John unpacks a brilliant, wealthy religious leader by the name of Nicodemus, who Jesus restores and loves, who is lost as a goose. He's so religious, so smart, but he's lost. And then right after that, in chapter 4, he rescues a precious lost Samaritan woman who's an outcast, who's promiscuous, who's uneducated, and Jesus loves them both the same. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we hear Luke's great statement of his gospel for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save the lost, the lost. And Luke gives us this brilliant parable of the prodigal sons to give us the Father's heart. The Father's heart longs for the lost sons, both who are religious and the young son who does the unthinkable and the older son who is religious but lost. Both of them are lost. And he welcomes them home. This is what Jesus' heart is about. Do we love lost people like Jesus does? People who are different than us, people who maybe believe different than us right now, or people who don't look like us, or who don't live in the same neighborhood, or don't vote like us, or don't speak the same language, or have a different lifestyle. Do we love them? Does our heart long for them to know Christ and to flourish as God designed? So what do our hearts truly love? Do we love his lambs? Do we love the least in our culture? And do we love the lost around us in our workplace and school, 
our families. What does your heart love? The applause of the crowd, the comforts of affluence, the applause of people. What we really love, we think about all the time. What we love, we pray about. What we love, we talk about. What we truly love, we sacrifice for. We pray for. We cry out to God for. So what do you love? What do I love? And is my heart properly ordered? Only the Holy Spirit can order our loves as God loves. So friends, this morning, wherever you are in your spiritual life, let me ask you a question. It's the question Jesus asked each one of us. Do you love me? And Jesus' words with that question is, do you love what I love? Do you love what I love? Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning, wherever we are, we're thankful that you've restored by your grace broken people like us. We praise you for that. But Lord, order our loves. May we be people who not only believe rightly, but love rightly. May we be a church that believes rightly and loves rightly. So with St. Augustine, we pray his prayer. Lord, set love in order in me. Set love in order in us. Let the church say amen. Amen.